Welcome to Our Lives with Shannon Fisher, where we discuss everything that brings us life. Come join the fun, we're talking about our lives. Hello everyone, welcome to Our Lives with Shannon Fisher. We have got a very educational show for you today about a chapter in American history that I did not even know existed. We are going to be talking to Jerry and Janet Souter, two historians who have written a book called Selling Americans on America, Journey into a Troubled Nation. And it is about the freedom train that uh, meant to unite the country after World War II, and I had never heard of this before. This is a, a not very well-known chapter in history, but it is fascinating. So welcome, Jerry and Janet. Well, thanks for having us on, Shanna. So the the impetus for the Freedom Train was it was a factioned and crippled nation after World War II. Everybody was, was in a situation that no one had ever anticipated. So set the scene a little bit and describe why the country was so divided. We had lived through the Great Depression. The farmers, uh, their land was being uh, foreclosed on. There were, of course, no jobs, soup lines, that sort of thing. And then that was immediately followed by World War II, where we were also making sacrifices. There was rationing. Women uh, had to join the workforce and take over men's jobs when the men went off to war. So we'd made all these sacrifices. And now it's 1945, 46. We've won the war. We want a reward. So as a result, workers were finding out that, you know, they weren't getting the raises they thought they deserved. They had made sacrifices on their salaries from 1941 through the almost the end of 45. Sure. And now, you know, they, they want better working conditions. They want higher salaries. Uh, and they weren't getting it. And so there was a massive strike wave. Uh, 1945-46, numerous industries, including utilities. There was a coal strike, as I recall. Uh, there was uh, men that were striking. And so it was about 5 million American workers were involved in these strikes. That was one thing. The uh, other thing, GIs were returning home looking for jobs, and they weren't finding them. And many of them had to join what they called the 5220 Club they'd get $20 a week for a year. And mm-hmm. that was kind of just to, to kind of help them out. But that, you know, that wasn't a whole lot. Sure. And on top of that, we had an influx of displaced persons that were coming in. Not unlike today, but they were coming in from Eastern Europe, and uh, people were concerned, well, all right, are they going to take our jobs? Right. And uh, they were all, people were also asked to continue the rationing. President Truman wanted to send grains and other foodstuffs over to war-torn Europe. Most people were starving. Mm-hmm. So there was, uh, it was an accumulation of distrust, lack of faith in, in, in our government. Uh, there was even a housing shortage. GIs, in, in addition to use, looking for work, they were also looking for homes, and there were just uh, the construction business. The construction was, uh, business, unfortunately, was also... Uh, the black market had taken right. over in there, and lumber was hard to come by because so much of it had been used to build barracks and things for the troops while we were getting prepared for war on two coasts we were fighting. Yeah. 
at the time, so that ate up a lot of those supplies. Their trains were uh, run off their wheels from uh, one coast to the other, and uh, so the transportation was difficult. We were living in a hard time, and everybody was saying, hey, what's happened to the American dream? We want a piece of it. Right, and it also seems that there was a, a political struggle at that time, too, having just come off of the Depression and the New Deal and having having defeated certain ideologies in the war, but then being faced with the USSR forming and the communism spread. And so there did seem to be a lot of political distrust at that time. Tell us about the inception of the train, and it grew to be such an incredibly large production. Take us through that trajectory. Yeah, it started out, uh, Koblenz every afternoon would go over to the National Archives for his lunch. And he ended up in one of the galleries uh, munching away on a sandwich. And he looked up on the walls and here was a copy of Hitler's Last Will and Testament in, written in his own hand. And he looked at it and read it and said, if only everybody else could see the twisted mind that was behind this uh, document, behind the whole Nazi operation, wouldn't people see that and say, oh, boy, aren't we lucky to live in a free country? Well, he took that to Thomas Clark, who was the uh, attorney general at the time, and said, I've got an idea, and uh, see what you think. We get this thing, we call it the Liberty Train, and we have a boxcar, or not a boxcar, a passenger car attached to the uh, back of freight trains that would go from one town to another, and it's a museum in this passenger car. And we have copies of all of these different documents from the National Archives the that people should see. The Independence, the Constitution. Constitution, the Bill of Rights, uh, and all of the stuff that we people would tie into our legacy of how hard it was to get for our freedoms and also to keep them. And Tom and Clark said, "This is not. This is a great idea." And so they started on it, and it was small, but uh, it was it was workable. So consequently, uh, they took it to uh, the uh, people who were involved in the, in the thing. Uh, the uh, National Archives curator, Dr. Solon Buck, and uh, uh, Barney Balaban, president of Paramount Pictures, and Spiro Patskouras, president of 20th Century Fox. These are all folks who had connections and in the private sector that could help fund a train like this. Because it was more than – Tom Clark said it would cost $20,000 to get this thing on the rails. And, and they thought, oh, God, it might as well be $20 million. Because right, exactly. The government, the government was flat broke. So that's why they created the American Heritage Foundation that funneled all of this stuff together, put together a board of directors, brought in the American Advertising Council with their expertise to help sell this idea. And they ended up taking this one train boxcar or one passenger car uh, hooked onto the back of a freight train and turned it into a seven-car streamlined train, modern train that they would send around to the whole United States. That is wonderful. Yeah, and then they thought, well, okay, we can't just have a train. We've got to have a whole celebration, a week-long celebration in each town, and each town they decided would have what they call a rededication week. And each day of that rededication week would be devoted to a certain segment of society, um, farmers, <coughs> uh, 
uh, veterans, labor, industry, uh, education, and so forth. <clears throat> and then, uh, and they would have parades and so forth. And representatives would come to each of these towns and outline what their duties were, show them the uh, collateral material that they would need, you know, the freedom. Uh, they got a whole package from the American Heritage Council. Yeah. They sent a package ahead to all of these towns before the train got there and said, here's what you need to do. And they even sent front men to these mm -hmm. towns to help the, uh, the people organize it. And the interesting thing was everybody bought into it. Yeah, there was no town that said, oh, no, I guess not. They all wanted the freedom train. They were sending yeah. in letters, welcome, the train isn't stopping at our place. Well, because the way the tracks go, they <laughs> we're right. going to towns of the biggest population right that are near you. You, you say in the book that the, um, the, the goal of the freedom train was to inspire Americans to the spirit of patriotism and the American brand of democracy. What exactly was the American brand that they were, that they were hoping to share? There was the duties of a good citizen. That was mm -hmm. the one thing they wanted to, to, to bring out. Uh, for example, uh, when they, uh, American, uh, American Heritage Foundation uh, put together the whole concept of the freedom train and the celebration of America, one of the pamphlets that they came out with outlined the duties of a good citizen, which was, uh, there were about nine points altogether. Basically, I will vote in all elections, I will serve on a jury, I will respect and obey the laws, I will assist public officials in preventing crime, I'll pay my taxes, I'll work for peace but fight for uh, freedom if necessary. I will avoid group prejudice. I will support our system of public education, that sort of thing. It all sounds kind of corny right now today when you listen to that. But at the time, uh, we were right on the edge of a lot of the, in different parts of the country, and every part of the country had their own, uh, their own ax to grind as to what was going, having problems. In the East, we had a lot of the strikes and the... Um, in the clothing and uh, cloth industries and in the automobile industries in Detroit. This was tearing people apart, really. And we also were, were probably, we couldn't fall back on the government because we had a president that we didn't elect. Harry Truman came in right. of, uh, uh, after Roosevelt died in office, and nobody knew him from deep center field, so we didn't know what to expect. And the 80th Congress, um, led by T Robert Taft, was a kind of do-nothing Congress. They were all Republicans. And so Truman had to face that, and nothing was happening, even though Truman tried to do as best he could, but the Taft vetoing the Taft-Hartley Act, and they overrode his veto, and all of these things, every time they'd come to head, it was loggerheads. So it, does this uh, strike a bell of memory that we're having problems we've got today? And Absolutely. It was these kind of things that resonated with us when we started to look up the possibility of this book, that how does it, uh, does it work with today's uh, reader? And these are the things that really caught our eye. There really was a, an information campaign like no other for this. Right. Uh, in the book, you talk about how uh, advertising, the, the discovery that advertising can sell ideas just as easily as 
products was just a, an epiphany. And, and I know that you, Janet, have a background in advertising. So how do you think that the, the, the propaganda, the, the print media, the radio, everything that they were doing to get the word out, how do you think that has impacted the way we advertise today? The interesting thing about it is it wasn't just the paper, the pamphlets, and the parades, and so forth. They also had print media and broadcast media. Mm -hmm. And there was a Freedom Train operetta. There was actually a, uh, a radio drama that starred uh, actor Eddie Albert and uh, Shirley Booth. So Eddie Albert uh, starts out, he's very depressed. He uh, has no faith in, in the future. He doesn't want to get married. He would like to start a new company, but he's afraid of failure. He's afraid of losing his job. And Shirley Booth is saying, you know, uh, we got let's take some chances here. This is a great country. I think we can do it. He says, no, I don't know. Anyway, they get uh, – she takes him to the freedom train, and there he has a vision of Columbus coming to America, of George Washington uh, taking on the British and uh, suffering through Valley Forge when he could have given up at any time. And as this go drama goes on, he's more and more inspired, travel through the train and looking at all these documents. By the time he reached the end of it, he decides, okay, the future is really worth working for. Maybe we can start a business. Let's have children. Let's carry on the American dream. And sure. The sort of thing. And they had a, a Freedom Train song sung by Bing Crosby and the Andrews sisters. Written by Irving Berlin. I mean, this was. I mean, this was huge. I mean, nothing like this had ever been done. And the oh. fact that it was a, a a public idea initially, but then, you know, through the through the beauty of motion pictures and private corporations, this this production, I don't think anything on that scale has been done since then. And of course, since then, and like you asked in the beginning, what had this to do with the advertising today? Well, this they didn't have television back then in the scale that we have now, that mm -hmm. you can reach millions of people at one time. The railroad was the one thing that went to just about every town and, uh, and city in the United States, and that's why they chose the railroad and chose the actual freedom train uh, to carry all of these real documents, the actual documents in it. And so that's why they assembled that, and it was uh, uh, everybody identified with that, and, and every train station became a town hall uh, as the freedom train pulled in. So talk us through a typical stop. Talk us through the train pulling up, what happens in a city uh, when, when the freedom train would come up. Okay, well, the train would, would pull up, and it usually uh, it arrived like very early in the morning, pre-dawn. Yeah, pre-dawn yeah. and that, because yeah. it was only going to stay a day in each town usually, except the big cities, maybe three days or five days in Chicago. Yeah, and... Uh, the so like about oh maybe nine thirty ten o'clock the town mayor would be there and all the end officials and they'd officially uh, have the ribbon cutting and open the train to and we're talking thousands of people waiting at average nine thousand to ten thousand people every day and that's for twelve hours so from uh, well let's see ten in the morning till 
about nine at night or so. Yeah, but until they finally had to close had to close the doors because you had people coming in from towns surrounding that town to get right. in on it. Mm-hmm. Wow. And, and the total the total number of people, forty million people and Americans, forty million Americans went through this uh either went through or participated in all of the material that happened before and after the train. So it had a huge audience. Yeah, in Brooklyn, a number of uh, teenage girls were standing in line for a long time, and they kissed the Freedom Train. Can you imagine? <laughs> to the extent that they obliterated, it was red, white, and blue, they obliterated the white stripe. Running along the train. Yeah. <laughs> On the locomotive. It yeah. was all covered with kisses. Yeah. I mean, oh, the reaction of people was so great. One woman, uh, I think it was in, the, in Washington and in Spokane, was looking at the documents, and she said, boy, I bet the Russians don't have anything like this. So yeah. what exactly were the documents? I know there were more than 130 uh, artifacts and documents on the train. What what, what were the, the most important ones that, that were touring? Well, we had the Emancipation Proclamation, the original one signed by Lincoln. The Magna Carta. Yeah, and uh, we had... Uh, General Wainwright's uh, apology to President Roosevelt as, he, as the Japanese were closing in on his cave on Corregidor. He apologized to the president for uh, losing, but he was going to have to go out to surrender to the Japanese commander. They had uh, things from the NATO charter. Uh, they had documents from... Uh, uh, well, the Bill of Rights, of course, uh, the Constitution. They had Washington's copy of the Declaration of Independence. You know, they had uh, one woman who had uh, served in the Revolutionary War a request for uh, the uh, payment, a pension payment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A, a woman who had served in the Revolutionary right. War. Right. And, and the Gettysburg Address was was not just the Gettys, a copy of the Gettysburg Address. It was the one Lincoln held and read from in the cemetery uh, on that day. So what was, an amazing collection. No wonder so many people came and, and wanted to see it. They yeah, said it was, it was almost like being in a church, one reporter said. Because uh, all these documents, the train itself it was really an armored, uh, they, they gutted three passenger cars and turned it into one long aisle of all of these cases that were on the aisle made of bulletproof lucite, and uh, people would pass down this one long aisle of the three cars. They had 27 Marines there that were guarding the collection, and they were spaced along the car as ushers, uh, helping move, move people along and explaining the documents and this sort of thing. So there was a, uh, a certain hushed reverence as the people would walk through this uh, as I said it was interesting. It was very quiet halfway through the train. Very quiet as the people moved through and looked at all these. I mean, the Emancipation Proclamation, the Thirteenth Amendment, is there. Uh, the uh, women's suffrage documents were there. All mm-hmm. of these things were interesting and fascinating. As they got toward the World War II stuff, people started to recognize things were part of their lives. I mean, Liberty Bonds, everybody bought Liberty Bonds during the war to help finance it. Right. And here were Liberty Bonds, in these cases, put on the same level of reverence as the uh, other documents. So this was uh, touching to these people. And at the very end of each tour through the train, 
there was this scroll that you would sign that was the Freedom Pledge, and you would sign your name to it, that you would obey this. And by the time they ended up, they had uh, 33 scrolls with over 3 million signatures on them, and those were given to the National Archives at the end of the train's run. That is so amazing. What's interesting, too, is that this uh, this wasn't like a museum we have today that has the bells and whistles. And, you know, museums are so much more interactive now. But these people, just they were just happy just to see the original documents and, uh, and have the privilege of being able to view them. And, Most and definitely. And the things in World War II, like the commander in um, – uh, the Battle of the Bulge in Bastogne when the Germans asked him to surrender. And the general said, nuts. His little note was there behind a case. And you could read his handwriting on there. It was it was the, the intimacy with these documents that uh, that really won people over. The impact to this, this train that went through their community. And that's why you had people lining the tracks as the train would go through. The, the, the locomotive was a super locomotive. It was a brand-new, latest diesel, and it could do 120 miles an hour. But they decided to keep it at a steady 50 miles an hour for two reasons. One, the general idea of the, uh, the preciousness of mm-hmm. these documents. And so they kept it at 50 miles an hour. All of the switches off the track were spiked open. Uh, so it would have passing through, and they only do that for presidential trains, but they did it for the freedom train. So there was never, every gate crossing had a flagman there, whether it was out in the boondock somewhere or in the middle of town, so the train could keep its schedule and keep on moving. And yeah. the, the schedule was set up so that it would not, uh, the weather would not impact the size of the audiences. They crisscrossed the United States. The map looks looks like someone just scribbled something across the map of the United States. It looks like chaos, but it was carefully, <laughs> carefully planned out. And the largest ticket ever written was given to this train. It was uh, seventy. What was it? Seventy-six thousand uh, dollars. It was for, for the passenger for the uh, uh, for the cost of that one ticket for all of these. And each community also had to pony up some money because they had to take care of the cleaning and dry cleaning for the Marine Corps uh, uniform. They had mm-hmm. meals. They had the Red Cross there to you know take care of anybody who maybe might faint from the heat or you know whatever. Call out the um, local police and mm-hmm. local security. The other thing too is that uh, one of the stipulations were, uh, especially of course in the South, uh, the foundation officials said there would be no segregated waiting line. And uh, two of the towns, Memphis and Birmingham, said, uh, you know, we, we'd have to have segregated waiting lines. We're too, too afraid of, you know, violence or fight, fights breaking out and that sort of thing. And the foundation said, well, sorry, then we're not coming to your town. And they didn't. Yeah. yeah. I think that's wonderful. I mean, I mean, it, it definitely, the, the message was unification. So they, they would go through, they would feel connected to the country and, and the American way. They would sign the pledge. And then what kind of civic engagement happened after the train pulled out of the station? Well, the whole point of it was to, to wake up people to the, uh, to the I, we're selling ideas here. It's not like uh, an advertising when you you look at an ad and you answer it and you get a box of soap powder or a new car. Right. It was, it was a concept, and it, it kind of set people up 
or actually what was going to follow in the 50s that happened uh, after you know, there was Truman's one. after Truman's inauguration at 49, which was a participated, the tree Freedom Train participated in that. It was its mm-hmm. last actual function. Uh, everybody had been kind of smartened up. It was this you, when you talk to people at that time, everyone who had seen it, and today even the people who are uh, who are our age who had actually seen the Freedom Train, even as a young child, they remembered it. And they remembered the, the the things that they saw there. Oh yeah, that was the one they had the the Constitution in, and uh, this sort of thing. It was a, it was more a subliminal. There wasn't a great overt uh, uh, passage that right. happened between the end of the Freedom Train and the uh, and the fifties that came along. Of course, the Korean War happened right then in 1950, and that really uh, took over all the headlines and that. So. That's why a lot of people don't remember the Freedom Train as much because the war followed right after it. Right. And uh, we started into the 50s and then the 60s. And so it kind of disappeared behind all of that. But it, it the people who saw it uh, took with them a little piece of the action that had made the United States what it is. Yeah. The other thing, too, is that we want to talk a little bit about the friendship train. Oh, yeah, it, it, the two trains that it inspired. Mm-hmm. It's also interesting. One was the friendship train, and that was Drew Pearson, a columnist of the time, a newspaper columnist, uh, saw what was happening over in Europe and and decided he was going to fund a boxcar to travel from California to um, the East Coast and pick up donations of food along the way. Well, this one boxcar multiplied into two boxcars and three boxcars, and pretty soon they had two other trains started off parallel to that, traveling from the West Coast to the East Coast, and $40 million worth of food and uh, and necessities and that were gathered by these three trains, took to New York and shipped the boxcars and in, in, in shipping in boats across the Atlantic to Europe and Italy and France and that who had suffered so much during the war. And that was called the Friendship Train. That's wonderful. And the other thing, too, but as far as unification is <laughs> concerned, uh, the po- politicians at the time, Truman and Dewey, both set out across the country in their own trains to talk to the people in, in the 1948 election off the back end of their trains. And Truman went out to the farmers, and he could talk to farmers because he had been one. He could talk about plowing. He could talk about uh, weather. He could talk about uh, cultivating and stuff like that, as well as everybody came up with the call, give them hell, Harry. And that was his motto then throughout the election. And Dewey had his own special victory train, and they carried the press with them, and they traveled across the United States because, as again, television hadn't come along, so you had to get FaceTime with people. That was the way they did it. Right. And that's that's probably why there hasn't been anything like it since then, because television came along and then the Internet came along. And mm-hmm. can you guys think of any uh, anything that could perhaps have the same effect now that the Freedom Train did then? Well, now today, in, in those days, it was a, it was a little easier to uh, get people to bootstrap their way up into a into find some uh, find a cause find a, a piece of the uh, the dream of the United States uh, that they could call their own because there was communications was was not as good as it is today and 
today we we have we we almost over communicate. Uh, we have a uh, a plethora of uh, inputs from all different media that we have that's giving us all everything that uh, you'd want to know and things you didn't care about, but it's all coming into your living room. Popularity. We're doing it a little bit right now with the popularity of the uh, the Hamilton show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, people are getting more interested in or engaging in uh, in American history. Yeah, I think there's, there is a hunger there right now that's, that's, that people want to know, you know, what what are we doing wrong now that somebody else did right earlier? And the ordinary people that have uh, put together this kind of a, of a freedom train, and they weren't just average folks. They were, the, of course, the, the folks that put it together from the top end. You needed that to get the right. organization going and everything. But the participation, everybody bought into this. And, and that was the thing that they were hungry for. You know, show us our roots. Show us the, the brilliance of people who rose above being ordinary to do extraordinary things. That was a, a simpler time, but it was also a time that uh, was a buffer. Getting into a new era. And, and I, I think actually the pendulum... You know, I think as Americans we start to realize things. Uh, we know now that there's a, there's so much division, but I mm-hmm. think we are going to. I think the pendulum is going to switch back eventually. I was kind of inspired by uh, by Truman the way he talked to the farmers. He he engaged with them. He knew what the, their problems were, and I think that might be uh, something that would inspire candidates today is to have more face time. And that's what and, they're doing now, you notice. All these town halls they're doing, they're going around from place to place, and I think that's a good thing, that they're going all over the country to talk to people and to listen. That's the other thing, to listen to what people need and what they what they ha- want from their government. And that's, as long as we keep listening to each other, uh, we'll keep on an even keel it's when we get to be too involved in our own opinion and everybody else is wrong that's when we start to separate out too much and that's one of the other one of the other problems we have and i think we're hopefully overcoming that now by taking advantage of uh television and the, our communication uh media in a, in a good way Most and, definitely. And that, that's going to give us, I hope, some direction that will pull us up out of this slump that we're in right now. Yeah, and there is no substitute for FaceTime. So so traveling around and campaigning these candidates, it's the best thing they can do to uh, to learn exactly the issues of every location throughout this huge nation. And it's good for candidates and I think for everybody to understand that, that you know, that, that we're all different and that that's, that's a good thing. And the Freedom Train was a, a miraculous unifying force back then, and I, I hope that, uh, like you said, I hope that the pendulum does swing back. Well, that, that was our reason for writing the book, for one reason, was to spread out at least that concept, that idea of a Freedom Train. And they just crowded into the city to see that train and experience uh, the history of the United States firsthand and the real documents handled by ordinary people that rose to extraordinary circumstances. Yep, 
Absolutely. Well, I think that's the perfect place to leave this. I can't thank you guys enough for writing this book and uh, and all of the listeners out there. It's called Selling Americans on America, Journey into a Troubled Nation by Jerry with a G and Janet Souter. So, Jerry and Janet, thank you so much. Okay. Well, thank you. It's been our pleasure. We enjoyed talking to you. Thank you, Janet. Wonderful. Thank you. 